So, welcome back to episode 8 of the Pulsock Podcast. I'm Jerome Devitt. From the outset, I should make it absolutely clear that my only function in this week's podcast is to serve as a facilitator for my friend Stephen Farley in one of Ireland's best-known NGOs, Trokra. A little while back, Stephen produced and hosted a great podcast on one of our key thinkers, Father Sean McDonough, who I had the pleasure of meeting when he came to address the Palsock teachers at an in-service day in Port Leash a little while back. Father McDonough, who was a major contributor to the papal encyclical Laudato Si, has really challenged students, but finding suitable resources to help teach his ideas has challenged teachers even more, hence me copying this podcast onto my channel. The only additional comment I'll make is to reflect the observations of a few of my own students who said, well, I'm not that religious. Why should I care about what some priest says? Now, I actually think that's a fairly reasonable question. So here's how I responded to it. Well, I said, you may not be Catholic or have any strong sense of faith at all, but there are 1.2 billion Catholics in the world, 40% of whom live in Latin America. If Pope Francis, and by extension Sean McDonough, can help change people's minds about how we treat the planet, then it doesn't really require an act of faith on your part. I don't think the planet cares either way, so long as we stop destroying it. See if you agree with that answer, and let me know if you don't, and why you don't. The episode notes today will have links to lots of resources that Troker produced to support this podcast. Uh, make sure you do take a look at them. They'd be really helpful in any climate crisis or sustainable development essays you may be preparing. You won't have any of my normal features today, like the quote of the day or whatever, but I will make sure to provide the usual listen-along guide to help you with your own note-taking. So, without further ado, I'll hand you over to Father McDonough, Stephen Farley, and his crew in Trogra. Hello and welcome to the very first Troker Politics and Society podcast. This is the first in a series of podcasts designed to help students explore a variety of topics and issues over the course of the coming months linked to the work of Troker as an overseas development agency. In this first podcast, we will cover aspects of Strand 4, in particular Topic 8.1, looking at actions that address sustainable development, Topic 8.2, looking at arguments concerning sustainable development, and Topic 8.3, looking at participants in the debate on sustainable development, focusing on Sean McDonough. Throughout this episode, we will hear from Sean about his time in the Philippines as a Colombian missionary, his work with the Dabali people, and how he underwent, as he called it, an eco-conversion due to witnessing the destruction of the Philippine forest and how it affects all life, not just human life. He talks to us about climate change, and problems with the Irish dinner. He stresses the need for education and what he sees as the main problems facing the planet in the next 20 to 30 years. As well as Sean and myself, you will hear from other Troker staff who will chip in with views and ideas linked to sustainable development. In the booklet that accompanies this podcast, you will find additional activities to complete in class or at home, as well as links to videos, and policy documents produced by Troker. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode. So, let's begin. I met Sean on a really warm sunny day up in Navan where he is based with the Columbans, 
and I started by asking him to describe his early life and what brought him to the Philippines as a missionary. I went to Mindanao. I spent a year studying the language of Cebuano and the culture, and then I began to work in a, a parish there. In 1971, Mr. Marcos declared uh, martial law, and uh, people were being put in jail for having ideas that people said were communist ideals. So I got very much involved in the whole area of uh, social justice. The Marcos dictatorship destroyed the lives of at least 100,000 people. I mean, I, I have friends of mine that were put in jail, teachers who were teaching maths, but actually were also teaching young women how to think. They were being put in jail, jail for that. And there, of course, like, it, it was just like being hit by, by, right, right in the face. I just saw on one side the wonder and beauty of the tropical rainforest. I didn't know much about it. I wouldn't have known much about the species. But on the other side, areas that had been clear-felled clear for 10, 20 years, topsoil is gone, uh, just like almost a moonscape. And then I said to myself, this has to be wrong. But then I look back at Catholic social teaching and there's nothing there. So that was the beginning of my journey and I was angry and I was upset. Sean's journey is one that lasted many decades and brought him all over the world speaking to and educating people about sustainable development and climate change. But there is no doubt that his work with the Taboli people in the Philippines set him on this journey. While I was there, though, I became involved in uh, working with a private group of Filipinos uh, called the Tiboli down in, uh, in the, the southeast, up in the mountains. And that was a regular revelation to me. I was supposed to be working on, on anthropology. And, uh, and particularly when I went down there, I saw what had happened in the previous 30 years in terms of the destruction of the forests of the Philippines. I went down to see you know, what ha was happened there. I saw the impact also on the destruction of the landscape, how it affects the people as well. That fundamentally, we as Christians, we as human beings, we're one species marching into the future. But there are hundreds of other species around us that we should, become, we should know their life cycle. They, they are our companions. And that's the kind of language you use, which very much is new language in the Catholic Church. This was never spoken about before. So that this encyclical of uh, Pope Francis uh, is, is so new that it'll take a long time for it to sink into the imagination of people. The encyclical Sean speaks of is Laudato Si, a letter from Pope Francis, not just the Catholics, but everyone, appealing for all of humanity to care for a common home. Sean also readily identifies fossil fuel use as one of the main factors contributing to climate change. 30% of climate change is caused by transport. Mm -hmm. you know, uh, industries cause. Uh, so these are all industries of the 20th century that depend on fossil fuel, coal, oil and diesel. Okay. Now, they were cheap. Uh, not alone did they cause uh, climate change, but they also destroyed the quality of the air. If you've ever been to China, as I have many times, you go into these cities, nitrous oxide will almost mm. kill you. Now, I, one of the great things that has taken place in the last 15 years is that, uh, that energy f uh, from uh, renewable sources is now almost as cheap as it was, as it is from, from fossil fuel. So that is going to make us the biggest impact into the future. So I was saying to, to uh, for, for example, people, uh, young people today, for example, uh, a Swedish car maker last, this month said, after 2019, they're going to make no more petrol or diesel cars alone. 
they will make electric cars or cars that will be electric and, and, and with uh, fossil fuel uh, be deleted. So in other words, the change in terms of our energy sources has begun to happen. The Swedish car maker that Sean refers to as Volvo, who have said that all new cars launched by the company from 2019 onwards will be partially or completely battery powered, a move that will help Volvo meet its legally binding carbon targets for new cars sold from the EU in 2020. Reduction of fossil fuel extraction and use is extremely important if we are to tackle climate change. Choker is currently involved in the global divestment from fossil fuels movement, which is working to achieve this by encouraging investors not to put their money into fossil fuel companies. I asked Emma Sheeran from Choker's campaign team to explain this movement. Emma, Choker is currently involved in the global fossil fuel divestment campaign. Could you explain a little bit more about what that is? Yeah, fossil fuel divestment, it's, it's really all about... Uh, encouraging investors to take their money out of the fossil fuel industry. Uh, it makes no sense to have financial investments in an industry that is really at the heart of the of the climate crisis. So investments in, in coal, oil and gas. We know that if the world is to have any chance of avoiding catastrophic climate change, um, that money needs to be removed from, from fossil fuels and transferred then into... Uh, clean renewable alternative investments, so uh, renewable energy investments. Um, so that's the that that's the, I suppose the background to our campaign. That's that's the that, that's the rationale. Uh, our key focus is to try and get the Irish government to remove uh, public money, so the state investments to remove them from the fossil fuel industry. We know that there are investments in, in some of the worst polluting fossil fuel companies. Uh, so our campaign is is trying to get legislation to ensure that uh, the, the Irish government has to remove those investments and will prevent any future such investments in, 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 in the fossil fuel industry. Uh, we've had great success so far in the campaign because of the work of, 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 of Trocra staff, volunteers and also ordinary citizens. The Irish Parliament of the Dáil has gone some way in, in the process towards uh, removing these investments. It's, we're not fully there yet, but uh, we received cross-party support on a motion to, that, that was proposing this law. So we still need to, to keep the, the fight going, really, um, but it's, it, there's great momentum behind this campaign so far. Sean is critical of Ireland's role. He thinks we do more damage than we realise and that we haven't done enough to tackle the issue over the past number of years. Like in Ireland, we like to think of ourselves as helping the third world and all this. But our reality on climate change is terrible. We're one of the worst countries in the world. The reality is we are animals who actually eat meat. But in the reality in the past, or where I live with private people, you have very small amounts of meat. You do nothing like the Irish dinner in the future. So a discussion about the Irish dinner becomes a very serious ecological and justice issue and theological issue. Climate change, in my estimation, is one of the most serious issues economically and ethically that people have to do today. And they have to educate themselves about it. There are no, there are no simple answers. The one thing we can say from the scientific community is 95% of science who seriously study this are convinced that climate change is happening, and it's happening pretty fast. If I had gone to Troper in the 1980s and said, could you give me 100,000 for, uh, for reforestation? They'd look at me and say, 
Are there any guys in white coats here? They might take this guy away. That was the reality. So that, all these things have changed. I think uh, NGOs have a very important role because they're now carrying the, the, the story. They're the ones, and like Troker yourself, we have learned about climate change. I mean, I remember talking to Troker 40 years ago about climate change, and they weren't interested in climate change. So that is a good process in itself, that you know you've come from a place where you didn't think that was important, to an area where you now begin to see this is one of the most important moral issues of our time. In recent years, Troker has been at the forefront of the fight against climate change, both in our programme countries and here in Ireland. But as Sean says, this wasn't always the case. I asked Sorka Fennell, who has worked for Choker for some time and is the current head of region for Central, West and Southern Africa, to describe how and why the view on climate change within Troker began to shift. I joined Troker in the 90s, um, in the late 90s. I was, I was in Africa prior to that, but not with Troker. Um, but a lot of the projects then, I mean, the 90s certainly were on food, food security, a big recognition that a lot of countries across Africa were using agricultural technologies that simply weren't able to support their basic food needs. Um, a late 80s height of the famines as well, the big famine that Bob Geldof raised all the attention on um, in Ethiopia. South Sudan, actually 84 and 87 were the two very big famines in Africa, Ethiopia and South Sudan, um, which were conflict and maybe drought related climate. You know, so that was possibly the first time you'd see mass movements of people from one part of a country to the other because rains didn't come. And that was in our sitting rooms, on our televisions. So that was perhaps actually one of the first times, certainly that I remember, um, or that the international community would remember seeing drought and failed crops and the result of that being massive mobilization of people and starvation. At that time was the terminology that was being used were people talking about climate change or was there recognition that this was this was a bigger global phenomenon or was it something that was considered more local? Well you see the thing that's interesting is that you know I remember actually very well when the panel on climate change came out first the UN panel and kind of said it's official, there's climate change, you know. And I kind of sniggered to myself and I said, well, farmers across America, or Latin America, where I'd been working, and Africa, have been saying that their weather patterns have been changing for decades. I also remember in Honduras, we started, first of all, doing irrigation. And it was because farmers were saying to us, the rains are supposed to fall on the 1st of May. And we know if we plant by the 5th, or you know, there was patterns to weather. Just like if you lived in rural Ireland, I mean, Irish people, any communities that depended on land and on rain and on weather for their food production, they were the first scientists, if you want to say that, you know, they were the first to say, this isn't working. The rains don't come when they're supposed to, when they come, they're too heavy. The dry spell in the middle stays too long, etc. So in Latin America, we started in 98 doing our first irrigation programs um, providing small scale farmers with drip irrigation and prior to that it was like irrigation was for big commercial farms for bananas for plantations um, and so we had to kind of I suppose what I would consider deal with the reality of living with drought so we were no longer responding to drought it was two or three consecutive years and it was like look this is part of reality so farmers and rural communities around the world people who lived beside oceans people who lived in the rural west of Ireland Ireland itself thought he- much heavier flooding you know, at certain time, late 90s, going into 2000s. So I think what kind of signaled it was extreme weather events. Um, scientists had to, you know, officially claimed it much later. Of course, they needed 
kind of scientific evidence that would be accumulated across decades or across across time and across countries to actually be able to definitively say that it was climate change. But certainly the communities that Throker has worked with um, since the 90s, and now when I reflect upon it, obviously in the 80s, you know, have been struggling with erratic weather. At what stage did climate change become a major issue that started to draw the attention of everybody within Troker that it was a priority that we had to address? I think it became evident that, um, you know, the experience of climate change and its impacts was no longer happening in pockets of countries across the globe. It was actually everywhere. It was happening across Africa, across Latin America. um, And it was every year. And there were connections being made with our lifestyles here and with carbon emissions um, and in terms of how that was actually causing what was happening. And when you look at the villages where we work and the places where we work and their consumption levels or lack of consumption and the lifestyles that, that the people we work with live, it was really, really clear that this was a really big issue of justice. Essentially that our lifestyles, our lifestyles were contributing to what we were witnessing overseas, you know, to people's inability to grow their crop, to grow their food. So I think as an organisation, we recognised, you know, this is much bigger than us. This is much bigger than a few countries having drought. This is actually an issue of justice. We need to be vocal on this. We need to take responsibility as well. It is clear from listening to Sean, Sorka and Emmett that it has taken time for NGOs like Troker to appreciate the impact of climate change on sustainable development, but that in recent times, right up to the present day, there has been a real drive to highlight the impact that climate change has on people around the world, and that it is, in fact, a justice issue. However, for many people around the world, their future is still very uncertain and their ability to cope with the impacts of climate change that are increasing in power and frequency is in question. I asked Sean to highlight some of the specific problems we face, in particular with water, and how he sees this developing over the next 25 years. Just look at what we allowed to happen to our water. You know, between the, I grew up in the 1950s and 60s. You could drink water from, from the Nina River. Then we went from former agriculture did enormous damage to our water, uh, both our rivers and also our groundwater. I'm absolutely sure that 25 years from now, people on this planet, wherever they are, in China, will be looking, where can I live in the world where I can breathe the air, where I can drink water? Because that's the way, the whole areas of China can't drink the water. Whole areas of the United States, whole areas of Europe. So we should be. We have in many situations, we, we allow uh, sewage to go straight into the Atlantic Ocean without it. So we have been irresponsible in the extreme. We have to be people who tell the truth, however problematic that is. Yeah. And on, on this area, the, the, the truth will be challenging, but I think it's, it's, it's the only way forward. As Sean alluded to, it is impossible to ignore the devastation climate change is having on the developing world. The current crisis in East Africa is extremely worrying for Troker as it is happening across a number of our programme countries. I asked Sorka about this crisis and why is it happening? Well, this year in particular, of course, there's the whole East Africa crisis. Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya, um, a lot of places where people also have nomadic lifestyles. So they have their animals. They depend on moving from place to place to get water. That water simply isn't there. So if you can imagine that your whole year 
and your lifestyle is based on moving from one place to another with herds of camels or herds of cattle. It is your economy, it is how you exchange money, um, it is how you marry, it is, the real, it, it is your cash really. Um, and all of that falls apart because actually none of the patterns that were there before are there and your livestock die. Um, so that the impact that that has on societies, on whole societies, is, is it's hugely significant and you can't reverse it. I'm seeing the same thing in Malawi. Um, people whose crops have failed, who can't send their children to school, like the knock-on effects, the first thing you do is take a child out of school, you sell a goat, you start to sell your assets, you go into debt to borrow money, to buy food. So this cycle, you know, it doesn't simply last one season, I didn't have food. The debt and the negative coping strategies that you implement at that time carry on for another year, two years, three years. So it's a cycle that is, um, I'm certainly seeing recurrently across the countries we work in. At the heart of what Sorka is saying, and indeed all of our contributors to this podcast, is that we need to change our relationship with nature to reset how we interact with other species on the planet. Sean explains the impact climate change is having on other species and sets it in a historical context. Because of climate change, we're living in the sixth largest extinction of species since life began. In 2004, Chris Thomas of the University of Leeds in Britain, he wrote an article in Nature saying, in the next 50 years, at least one million species will be extincted through climate change. The reason, of course, is the habitat changes and the species cannot change fast enough through evolution and therefore they go extinct. What, what does it mean for us? Well, for us it means we are one of the species on the planet. Our philosophy and theology didn't do us a great service in saying we are cut off completely, the platonic world, that there's a chasm between humans and the rest of creation. Biology tells us very richly in the last 150 years we're part of creation. We share 72% common DNA with mice and rats. We're part of everything. This is a very interesting point that Sean makes. The part of the reason humans have continued to do damage to the environment is because we have viewed ourselves as somehow detached from the rest of nature or creation. Sean recognizes the importance of changing the nature of this relationship to one that recognizes that we are part of creation and reliant on it for our very existence. I spoke to Colin Hogan about this transition and how we think both theologically and philosophically about our place on the planet. Well, I think Christian creation theology is in an evolving process. And in past years and maybe traditionally, the church would have, would have thought that God created the world and God created us and he gave us dominion over it. But however, in very recent times, with, especially with the publication of Law Letter C, and also given that we're all made in the image and likeness of God. There is, um, there is the argument that we're all coexisting with one another. And that it is our duty and also our maybe responsibility to look after creation and to take care of it. And I suppose we often think about maybe what a document maybe like La Letter C can offer to someone. But one great phrase that Pope Francis used in the document was about what do we leave to the generation coming after us? And what do we leave to the children who are growing up? And Father Sean is experienced in the Philippines, tells us that it's only through human experience and through living with people and seeing what our actions on creation can create for another community, that's where the change can happen. 
And when that change happens, as in Father Sean's case, um, that change can be powerful and transformative. We depend on the planet for our food. And if we're losing one-sixth of the, of, the, of the food sources, we depend on the planet for our medicine. The great um, uh, biologist Edward Wilson of Harvard is basically, there's a race on, and I saw it in Lake Savu where I lived, between scientists trying to find out what the structures of these plants are, or, or other creatures, and them becoming extinct. So in a sense, we're doing enormous damage to ourselves. Logic would dictate that once we recognize as a species that we are reliant upon nature or creation for our very survival, then we will try our best to look after it. However, this doesn't seem to be the case. Education must play a part in changing this mindset. But as Sean has said, we don't educate people enough about this issue. I spoke to Alicia Kelly from Choker's Development Education team about this. To be honest, I don't think a lack of education is the problem. I think it is how we educate that is the issue. I believe that in schools we teach about climate change from a very scientific perspective and we also throw around a lot of blame over who's causing it. And although this is extremely necessary and important and students need to know the scientific uh, reasons behind climate change, in my opinion, if we teach children from a young age to love nature and to play outdoors and to learn to appreciate planet Earth, not as a resource to be consumed, but as a source of joy and happiness and something to be cherished, then their relationship with nature will change and hopefully encourage life choices that are not based on mass consumption and destruction of the environment, but on preserving and nurturing the world around them. In Trocra, much of our work is based on tackling climate change. We work with children as young as three, right up to third level students. Our focus moves from looking at the science behind climate change to examining the social justice issues associated with climate change around the world and also to asking young people to take action against climate change. I believe our approach allows students to engage on many levels from the head to the heart, learning the facts, but also appreciating the human impact of their choices. Ultimately, we want young people to be equipped with the tools to not just make informed decisions, but also to take action and ask questions. We want to help young people to discover their voice so that they are empowered to speak out against government policies and help bring about positive change on a national level. I've met so many inspiring young people who have a positive vision for the future and who are working together to make it happen. They believe they have the power to be the change the planet Earth needs. There is a real sense of urgency that comes across from all the people that I have spoken to for this podcast and a recognition of the facts of climate change and what it will mean for our lives in the future. I asked Sean what he thinks we need in order to change the way we approach climate change and our relationship with nature. And what we actually need is movement. We need mitigation. We need policies and programs that cut down the, the, the amount of carbon dioxide or carbon equivalent that goes into the atmosphere. We need a lot of money for countries that have already been affected by the reality of climate change in terms of just the, the habitability of the places in which they live. And most of all, we need new technologies because we're starting on a journey, I think, which is saying the end to the fossil fuel era. Experts are telling us now a very troubling point. They're saying to us that we have to leave 80% of fossil fuel in the ground if we are to maintain a temperature below the 2 degrees Celsius rise. 80% of our fossil fuels must remain on the ground. That's a lot less fuel out there. I asked Emmett to explain this idea a little further. Okay, Emmett, could you explain a little bit more about this idea of having to keep 80% of our fossil fuels in the ground? To have any chance of avoiding runaway climate change, 
80% of fossil fuel reserves need to remain underground. This means that the majority of coal, oil and gas reserves owned by fossil fuel companies and governments can never be extracted and burned. And this implies a major overvaluation of fossil fuel assets, indicating that there is a carbon bubble that will eventually burst. And this bubble will have serious implications for investors, including pension beneficiaries. In Ireland, we know that bubbles are not always a good thing. And we also know that an overvaluation of assets, like houses, for example, can lead to collapse. Nobody wants that. So what needs to happen? What needs to be done? Well, Sean brings it back to government on a number of times during his interview. Debates in the Doyle, proper policies, leadership. I asked Sorka what she thinks is needed to tackle climate change. I think there's two things needed. I think the first thing is political will. That's what's needed anywhere in the world to bring about change, is policy. Um, And so we need political leadership on that. And the second thing is people, and in particular young people. I think young people have a fundamental role in any change, actually, if you reflect on it, that has ever come about. Um, Young people have a bigger stake in this uh, than anybody because it is their future. It is their collective future. Um, So I think young people, in a way, first of all, need to internalise this. They need to really deeply understand the connection between lifestyle and climate change and between lifestyle and consequence, even if it's far away. If we don't truly internalise it, I don't think we can be as committed or as driven or as motivated as we need to be. And there is an urgency. I mean, even across Europe already this year, you see 40 degree temperatures. We're having heat waves that countries have never experienced. Young people have the energy, have the stake, have the passion to just mobilise and put that pressure for political will and take actions that will demand change from our leaders in order to be able to support Trokra and the people in, in developing countries to actually deal with the impacts of and mitigate the future impacts of climate change. Political will. This is the firm intention or commitment on the part of a government to carry through a policy, especially one which is not immediately successful or popular. Emma agrees that political will is the key element. Yeah, I'd say political will is absolutely essential. It's arguably the most important uh, thing for our decision makers, our politicians, to, to actively help the country and set in motion our, our transition away from uh, from fossil fuels um, to a more sustainable country. It's absolutely essential. But, you know, how will political will come about? It's vital that ordinary Irish citizens make politicians uh, do this. Uh, at the moment, politicians don't see, it, cl- see climate change as a priority issue. Uh, and politicians have constantly told me in my work that we won't consider it a, a priority issue unless we hear about it from voters. So you got to remember, uh, politicians work for ordinary people in society. Uh, and young people who will be voting in the next uh, couple of years when they turn 18 need to remember that your vote is really, really important. You can help dictate to politicians uh, and would-be politicians what the priorities are that they need to focus on. Uh, so, for example, at the last general election, Troker had a campaign trying to get ordinary Irish people, uh, ordinary voters, to, to talk to, to, to elected representatives and, and candidates about the need for Ireland to do more to tackle climate change, to reduce our carbon emissions. Um, 
And so that basically meant that when a candidate came to your doorstep looking for your vote, that you said, well, I'll vote for you if you prioritise climate action. Um, you know, and, and Troger have also been uh, involved, along with other uh, organisations, uh, development organisations and environmental organisations, in, in bringing about, helping to bring about a climate law in Ireland. Uh, so that's a really good example of, of, of a political instrument. But that took pressure from ordinary citizens saying to politicians that we want the law in Ireland that will help us as a country reduce our, our greenhouse gas emissions. So thankfully we have that law now. It's not a perfect law, but we have one. Emmett also had some great advice for young people living in Ireland today. Yeah, so I guess there's three main pieces of advice that I'd give. Um, the first would be to really do some research and understand the science behind climate change. Why is it happening and why is it such a, uh, a burning issue um, that we need to take action on? Uh, also, like, just do research on, to find out where your local politicians stand on the issue. Uh, are they in favour of taking strong climate action? Do they believe uh, in renewable technology? Where do they stand on, on reducing Ireland's climate emissions? Uh, another thing to do is to, to talk to your friends, family, uh, schoolmates about this issue. Communicate the importance uh, of taking action on climate change. And also, very importantly, communicate that climate change is a justice issue. The fact that people are in, in the developing world are suffering the most because of uh, climate change, yet they've done least uh, to cause it. So, you know, people your age in places like Malawi um, and other parts of the developing world are, are suffering because of, of climate change, but they've done least to cause it. The third thing I'd say is talk to your uh, TDs about climate change. Get them to justify their positions and their political party's positions on where they stand on climate change and to justify their track record in tackling the issue. Uh, and you could bring them into your school to do this, or you could go visit them in their in their local constituency offices. That's really powerful. Get out of your school and visit the politicians and make them justify their positions. Um, you know, and this is so important because politicians, without without you talking to them and, and demanding an answers and actions from them, there won't be the political will there to, to, to really reduce carbon emissions. Um, remember, climate change is the greatest injustice of our time. We have to act now on this issue, not next year, not 10 years' time. So put it up to the politicians and the decision makers, uh, and you can do that. We need to act, and we need to act now. This is the clear message that comes through from both Sean and the staff from Troker. There is no more time to waste when it comes to climate change and transitioning to a future that is just and sustainable for all the people on our planet. Climate change is a justice issue affecting generations of people and it will take the efforts of this current Leaving Cert generation and the next and the next in order to ensure the humans do make that transition, that eco-conversion as Sean called it, and recognise that we are a part of nature, part of creation and we have a special role to play as stewards of our common home. So, there you have it. The only final thing I'd add would be to reflect on a question I asked Father McDonough when I met him myself. Having listened to his criticisms of the nature of capitalist consumption and the lack of solidarity between workers, I asked him how much he'd been influenced by Marx's perspectives, and not typically a big feature of the Catholic Church's teachings, I should add. His very direct response to me was that he was very in tune with Marx's thinking and had read vast amount of Marx himself. 
To me, this was yet another fascinating example of the unexpected connections that pop up throughout the course. Is it any wonder, then, that where Father McDonough uses the word Anthropocene to describe the unprecedented impact that humans are having upon the planet, others use the word Capitalocene, the impact of capitalism itself? So maybe when I sign off this time, I'll do so by reminding you that you might view the word society at the society to which you belong, in a much more broad way than you'd previously imagined. And therefore, you're not apart from that broader society, but a part of that society. See you next time.